Well, hey, if you have your Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it? We are going to be in John 12. We're going to be finishing up John 12 today. We uh, studied the first part of John 12, verses 1 through 19 last week, and we're going to be doing verses 20 to 50. So go ahead and grab your Bible. Uh, before we do that, however, I just want to provide a bit of an update. A number of months ago, the elders announced uh, that I would be taking a sabbatical this fall. Now, over the last month or two, uh, that's been a little bit up in the air, kind of wondering, is this the best time to really take it? Uh, and alongside the elders, as well as somebody that I've been pursuing in my life, someone that's my spiritual, now my spiritual director, we've made the decision that I would still take my sabbatical. And so August 29th, the last Sunday of August will be my last Sunday with our church family. And then I'll be taking 12 weeks away from all duties and responsibilities connected to my role uh, at, at Church of the City as the pastor of Teaching and Vision. There'll be more details coming out about my sabbatical in the coming weeks. We'll have an elders update in a couple weeks. But as I said, all of my duties and responsibilities, they'll be taken care of by some of our staff and also our elders. Some things, of course, will be put on pause. But for the most part, um, everything is going to be taken care of. I think this is going to be really good for me. I also think it's going to be really good for our church family. And so what I'd be asking you to do between now and then and then through my sabbatical, but specifically now, is just be praying for me, that God would prepare my heart, that he would lead me to Towards uh, a, kind of a focus or a theme of what he'd really like me to kind of give attention and and um, and really my heart to over this time, and so I'd ask that you'd be praying for that, as well as prayer for our church family and our staff and elders as they begin to working with them to to look at my responsibilities and divide them amongst one another. So as I said, more details will be coming, but I just wanted to give that update. Well, let's take a moment now to quiet ourselves. Um, to maybe just listen. Maybe in this point, you'd identify how you're feeling. Maybe in this moment, you'd invite the Holy Spirit to speak to you. Whatever it is, take a moment to do that. Then I'll pray and then we'll jump into this morning's text. And so, Jesus, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity just to be still and to be quiet. And I pray that you, by your spirit, would speak to us today, that you'd convict us, that you'd guide us into truth. God, maybe for some watching, this will be maybe the first day, the first Sunday, where they commit their lives to following you. So, God, we give this time to you. We trust you with it. We thank you for your word that we can study. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, as I said, now take your Bible. We're in John 12, verses 20 to 50. Now, John 12 and verses 20 to 50 concludes John's telling of Jesus's public ministry. Now, you might be saying, well, what do you mean by public ministry? I mean, his public ministry compared to his private ministry. The last number of chapters of John are going to focus on Jesus' time in his private ministry to his disciples, and then also leading to his passion of his death, his resurrection, and then his ascension. And so that's the focus of the remaining parts of John. And so we're coming now to the conclusion of Jesus's public ministry. Now, the question that we need to ask then is what would you, or what now what we're going to see in this text today of what would be important for John to tell, uh, thinking back to that time with Jesus as he's led by the spirit to write, what were the things that Jesus would want the crowds to be challenged with as he now will be departing from them and spending the rest of his life on earth and doing private ministry. And I think the thing that John highlights and the thing that's been coming out for me this past week as I've been studying it is an emphasis 
emphasis on what it actually means to be a follower of Jesus, what it actually means to believe Jesus and then to follow him. As we've seen, as we've been working through John, there were people that came to believe Jesus, but as we saw in some, in some ways, many of the, many of these crowds, it was inadequate. It was inadequate faith. They believed in maybe Jesus' miracles and things, but they didn't actually believe into Jesus nor take on a posture of discipleship to follow him. And so here in the text, I believe we see a number of reasons and a number of kind of defining for us what it actually means to follow Jesus. And so maybe you're someone, you're asking the question, what does it actually mean to follow Jesus? I think that answer is going to be answered for you today, as well as those of us who consider ourselves followers of Jesus to be reminded of what it means to grow, to become more like Christ, to walk out our discipleship to Jesus. So with that, we're going to jump in here at verse 20 and we're going to work our way through to verse 50. So here's what we read in verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Now this is a continuation of what we have studied and what we looked at last week in which Jesus is now in Jerusalem for the celebration of the Passover. And we read here that some Greeks or another way of terming them are Gentiles are here at the feast as well. And this was not uncommon. Uh, Many Greeks kind of respected and and looked at Judaism in kind of a, a good light. They weren't necessarily converts, but they would go and they would observe Jewish festivals in Jerusalem, in this case, the Passover. And so there are some Greeks who came up to the feast um, in Jerusalem. Verse 21, what do we find out that they do? So these came to Philip, one of Jesus's disciples, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. And they asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Now it's not entirely clear from these verses, firstly, why they approach Philip in particular. Now it could be that Philip had a Gentile name, as does his brother Andrew. Or it could also be that they have maybe some hesitation about approaching Jesus, unsure of how Jesus would receive them as a Gentile audience. It's also not entirely clear why they actually want to see Jesus. Likely, their interest has been piqued as they've been listening to conversations and the events that have now surrounded Jesus as he's come into Jerusalem, but we're not entirely sure. But it is interesting. Last week, we looked at some contrasts in the text. It's interesting you see a contrast here in which Greeks, Gentiles, have an intrigue and an interest in Jesus, where in the verse prior, in verse 19, we saw that the Pharisees, Jews themselves, religious leaders, were angered at Jesus. So kind of the contrast of the Jews not wanting Jesus and these here Gentiles having interest in Jesus. Well, how does Jesus respond to their interest and to them desiring to seek him out? And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Jesus said, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Now notice that Jesus doesn't respond to their request. Instead, he responds to the situation of their request. And this is a transition point now in John's gospel. Some of you may recall that when Jesus spoke of the hour before, it was always something in the future, but he's now speaking about it in the present. And what he's seeing here in this Gentile interest towards him, it's a signal for him that his hour, speaking of his death, his resurrection, ascension, his exaltation is now at hand. So this is a turning point as we've already, I've already told you, this is now the turning point of Jesus's public ministry ending. And Jesus is recognizing that now in his response to the, this request. Now at this point, the Greeks actually disappear from the scene. We're not told whether or not Jesus sees them, but once again, this signals 
Because when Jesus dies, and we learn later in the scriptures that when Jesus dies, he comes back to life and he ascends, which opens up the floodgates for both Jews and Gentiles to come to Jesus, representing the new covenant community that could come to Jesus. And so Jesus responds not to their request, but to the situation and the signal for us as those that are reading here. What does Jesus say next? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, Jesus here is saying that a grain of wheat must die in order to bear fruit. And what he is saying is that this is to be likened to Jesus' own death, the hour that now he is speaking about, that his death would bring about a great harvest as a seed is vindicated So Jesus in his death is glorified and therefore people will come to him to bring a great harvest. Notice what he says then, whoever loves his life loses it and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. For Jesus, what he's saying is if death is necessary for generation of life for him, we should expect the same of followers of Jesus, you and I. So what does he say? Those that love their life will lose it. This is... What he's speaking about here is a person's focus on their self rather than on God. It's delighting and resting in oneself rather than delighting and resting in God, which is the root of every single sin. He says the other way to live, though, is to hate one's life in this world to then keep it for eternal life. For Jesus, what this means is that that person is denying themselves and not focusing on their own self-interest. It reminds me of what Jesus says in Mark 8, verse 34. He says, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And then Jesus says in verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the father will honor him. What he's saying is where I am, there my servants will be. And that is the father then who will honor me and those that are following me. So what do we learn here as a mark of what it actually means to follow Jesus? Here's what Jesus is saying. Following Jesus means dying to ourselves and serving him no matter the cost. Following Jesus means dying to self and serving him no matter the cost. Jesus says coming to him will mean in some many ways a death to ourselves, our own selfish, our, our own self-focus and interest in our own well-being. Instead, we're to turn from that and focus on God's kingdom and the prioritization of his kingdom in this world. So rather than focusing on how can the kingdom of myself or for me speaking about myself, how can the kingdom of Matt be expanded? I say, how can I participate and prioritize the kingdom of God in my life following King Jesus? And I think what prevents many people from following Jesus is fear around their own personal livelihood. What I mean by that is what they see as the necessities of their own way of life. They're not willing to give up their own personal self-interest or their own livelihood in order to pursue Jesus. Uh, a time in Andre and I's life where we recognized that God was calling us to something to deny ourselves and our own comforts was the planting of this church. At the time, I'd, I'd, quit, a, I'd quit my other job in full-time ministry, and I said, I'm going to transition into church planting. We sold our house, moved to where we did now. 
And that was a season where we were really saying, and, and it was a beginning of a new season of our lives, we were saying we want to prioritize the kingdom of God in our lives no matter what, no matter the cost. And it hasn't been easy. Now, it might not be church planting for you, but it could be how are you prioritizing your life around Jesus' kingdom principles, around building the kingdom of God? It could be budgeting money every single year and every single month in order to be hospitable to your neighbors. It could be budgeting every month that you put in an envelope anonymously in someone's mailbox that you know is struggling financially. It could be prioritizing, maybe inviting somebody to live with your family because you have some extra space and you know somebody is in need. All of these ways that I'm talking about are simple examples of ways that we prioritize Jesus and his kingdom, denying our own, building of our own kingdoms and instead prioritize him. Following Jesus means denying self and serving him no matter the cost. Now at this point, you're maybe asking the question, well, how does that happen? How does that happen? Like a willingness to do those sorts of things. And the truth is, is that our hearts actually need to be changed. And this is what Jesus references. You remember back in John three verses five to eight, where Jesus says that we need to actually be born of the spirit and of, of the flesh, or we need to be born of water and the spirit. He says, says that we cannot enter the kingdom of God unless we're born of water and of spirit. He says the wind blows as the spirit blows with it wishes that the spirit of God needs to bring us to life. As we come to have faith by grace through faith, we come to believe Jesus and the spirit of God grips our hearts and changes us. He changes our heart. And what is Jesus speaking about there? Our executive center, the control panel of your life. Is it about you or is it about Jesus and his kingdom? Well, what happens next? Verse 27, Jesus says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Now, Jesus recognizes here that he's troubled, which signals a revulsion, a horror, an anxiety, an agitation. Jesus ultimately here is expressing his weakness, understanding what is about to come. It's reminiscent of what we also read of what will happen with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, in which he prays, Father, take this cup from me. But notice then what he says, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. He recognizes that even though he is feeling and experiencing emotional and agitation and anxiety around what is about to happen, he's resolute in his commitment to his father and submitting to his father's will. And then he says, father, glorify your name. Now, as a small point here, I think it's important to note that Jesus, the perfect human who ever lived, both here is expressing his emotion towards what is to come, but is also resolute in his commitment. And I think that's really important because sometimes what we can do is we can say, you can't feel that emotion without calling into question your commitment. But here in Jesus, we see that he expresses his emotion, his feeling, but it doesn't change his resolute commitment to obey the father. Verse 28b, what happens? Then a voice came from heaven I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Now, this is only one of three instances in the gospels where there's an audible voice coming from heaven. Another time is at Jesus' baptism and the other time is at Jesus' transfiguration. And so this is a huge moment. And what does this voice, what does the father say? He says, I have glorified it. What does he mean by that? He's speaking of Jesus' incarnation, the coming of, of God, the son, 
to put on human flesh and his miracles. You think of John's writing of saying this was a sign of Jesus. He says also, and I will glorify it again. What does he mean? He means that by Jesus' death and his exaltation, I will glorify my name again. Well, how does the crowd respond? Do they hear something? We read that they do in verse 29. The crowd that stood there and heard that it said, and heard it, said that it thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. So they hear a thundering, they think it's thundering, some think it's an angel, some confusion around it. And then Jesus gives them some clarification about what's it about. And he says this, this voice has come for your sake, not for mine. Now, what does Jesus mean by this? I mean, Jesus was the one that was expressing kind of his vexation and his anxiety. What does he mean by this voice has come for you and not for me? What he means by that is, well, firstly, that Jesus didn't need to hear this voice in order for him to continue towards the cross. Now, that doesn't mean it wasn't of any value or benefit to him, but it wasn't primarily for him in order to continue to go to the cross. By being for the people's benefit, he could be speaking here of the disciples, as we've seen in other cases in which the writers, John in particular, as we've been studying, adds details of, well, then the disciples understood what this meant after Jesus's glorification, wrath for his death and exaltation. The same thing could be happening here. And also, as I just said, this is one of three times in which there's an audible voice coming from heaven, which should have signaled to the crowd, if they had any spiritual interest at all, should have signaled to them that something profound was going on here. And that's why Jesus says it's for your benefit, not for mine. What does all of this mean? What is, what is happening? What is this signaling? And Jesus goes on to say that in verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. What does this mean? Well, Jesus is coming, his incarnation and his death bring about a judgment of the world. As we've read that Jesus comes as the light. And when the light comes, it exposes darkness, which forces a confrontation for people with the darkness in their life. Secondly, Jesus says, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And so similarly with Satan, Jesus's life, his death and ministry was the beginning of the end for Satan. While the cross seems like Satan's victory, as we understand, as we study it, it actually means his defeat. And then Jesus says to be lifted up, which is also, which is a symbol, not only to the cross, but also that we read that he'll draw all people to himself, which was, again, if we go back to the context of this entire chapter, the Greeks coming to him, a symbol that all people will, Jew and Gentile will be welcomed to come to him. And then we read that Jesus says in verse 33, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die by being lifted up. Now, this is all obviously, as we know, a clear reference to the cross, but as we have seen, it's also far more than that, that more people will be drawn to him. Well, what's the response to the crowd, the crowd to this saying? The crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? Who is the son of man? Now, the, the, the response kind of indicates the connections that they're making between Jesus, the Son of Man, but they also thought the Son of Man would be triumphant and eternal, that he wouldn't die. And so they're confused. They're saying, what are you talking about? Is this Son of Man, is this Messiah, is he going to die? Because we don't understand what you're talking about. So Jesus responds, verse 35. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. 
while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. Now, Jesus, we've already read in this gospel, he says, I am the light of the world. So Jesus says, walk in the light. Follow me while you have the light, while you have me with you to avoid darkness. He then says the alternative to the person that walks with him as he is the light is the person that walks in darkness. And that person actually has no idea of where they're going because they're walking in darkness. They don't have the light. And then he says, walk and believe in the light and you will then become sons of the light. And he's saying this because he's still with them. And what he understands is not going to become any easier to follow him once he is gone. And so what, in, in the last number of verses here, what, what is Jesus saying? What, what does it tell us about what it actually means to follow him, to believe him? Well, to follow Jesus and to believe in Jesus is to believe that Jesus is the light and to follow him means walking in his light. To believe in Jesus, to believe first that Jesus is the light and then to follow him is to believe that the way that he illuminates is to then walk in his light. Reminds me of Psalm 119 verse 105 where the psalmist writes, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Now remember back in John 1 verses 1 to 18, the prologue, and Jesus is referenced as the word, the logos. So your word, Jesus, you are the lamp and you are the light of my path. What this means is that followers of Jesus, those who believe into Jesus, we look to Jesus to not only be the light, but also be the one illuminating and showing us how we're to live, the difference between what is right and wrong. When things come up in our culture, we look to Jesus to help us understand and to make sense of what is going on in the world because he is the light and what he does is he exposes the darkness, the darkness of the world, the darkness of our own hearts. And he exposes it so that then we can explore it and that then true freedom can be brought and true light can be experienced. Verse 36b, what happens next? Well, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. This kind of makes me think of a bit of a mic drop moment Right? He says these things, invitation to follow him as the light, a, a teaching on what it actually means to follow him, denying self, dying to self. And again, the signals that Jesus' public ministry is coming to a close. Well, then the question is, well, how does the crowd respond to these words of Jesus, this clarification of following him, believing in him? Look, we read in verse 37, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Though he had done many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. What this means is that regardless, or in spite of all of the miraculous signs that they had done, people did still not believe in him. Now, just a question, is it surprising that John records this? Now, if you are a follower of Jesus, maybe it's a bit surprising that people wouldn't want to follow Jesus because you follow Jesus. But if you're not a follower of Jesus, think about this for a moment. If the Bible was just put together in order to convince people to follow Jesus, you would think that they would only include, the Bible would only include stories and that John would only record stories of people responding positively to Jesus. And so in some ways it's counterintuitive to say, you know, Jesus has said all of these things, but look here, people have still rejected him. They don't believe in him. And once again, this is a reminder that, that John, like the other gospel writers, they're recording historical fact, but they're also understanding the wider story of God, the bigger redemptive plan of God. And that's what we read happens next. So if we begin in the verse 37, carry on to verse 38, we read 37 again, though he had done many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. But look in verse 38, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And what did Isaiah say? 
Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is a quotation speaking of the Messiah in Isaiah 53 verse 1. Reference to what he heard from us is the teaching of Jesus and the arm of the Lord is thinking of Jesus' miraculous signs. So these people still do not believe in Jesus, even after his teaching and after seeing his miraculous work. Verse 39, it says, therefore, they could not believe for again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Now, there seems to be here some sort of divine prevention or a hardening of hearts or blinding of eyes for people to understand Jesus. And in order to give some context to this, we're going to get a little detail-oriented here. We have to look at the context of Isaiah 6. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah has a vision that results in the cleansing and repentance of the people. And so Isaiah says to God, he says, send me as your messenger. And so God says, okay, I will send you as, as my messenger, but just so you know, your message and you will only to speak what I give you to speak and your message will mean scorn and rejection. And for many people, it will be the very message that you bring that will bring scorn and rejection. And so their hearts will be hard because of the message that I am giving you to bring to them. And so what we see then in this sense is God himself through the prophet here, and as far as divine prevention, is hardening the hearts of the people. Now, as we look at the rest of the New Testament, God's kind of, we think of it in this way of judicial hardening or blinding the eyes or hardening the hearts. It's frequently in other parts of the New Testament, but it always has the following things in mind when it speaks of it. The first thing is that God's sovereignty, his power and dominion, his knowledge of all things is never set against human responsibility, that there is a human response to God and to his sovereignty and the human responsibility of sinning and making choices that do not align with God's law and God's desires. Secondly, God's hardening is directed towards guilty people by their own actions and choices and not towards innocent or morally neutral individuals, which is really none of us. Thirdly, God's sovereignty and hardening are a cause for hope because it means that we can petition him. I oftentimes pray, God, soften the hearts of my neighbors, soften the hearts of my friends that don't know and love you so that they can hear your word and respond. And then fourthly, God's hardening is always part of his ongoing redemptive plan. If you look at Romans 9 and 11, Paul writing to the Roman church speaks of the hardening of the hearts of the Jewish leaders, which then led to the Gentiles being grafted in, which then led to the jealousy of the Jews to then return to Jesus. And isn't that not what we're seeing in this text, beginning with the Gentiles having interest to seek out Jesus after the Pharisees have said, we want him killed, they're angered about Jesus. All of that is playing out here. So then what do we read? Verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. What glory did Isaiah see? Well, Isaiah saw a vision of the coming Messiah, the suffering servant in Isaiah 52, verse 13 to 53. If you look just all at, uh, at Isaiah 52, verse 13 on into chapter 53, you see he bore, he bore our griefs. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. Isaiah saw the glory of the suffering servant. Well, verse 42, let's keep going. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So again, back to the context, despite the rejection of the crowd, 
not hearing, their eyes have been blinded. We see here that there is some belief on behalf of the authorities, but they didn't confess it because they were fearful of being cast out of the synagogue, losing their position. And why? Because they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. What does this tell us about what it actually means to follow Jesus, to have adequate faith, a mark of our discipleship? Well, to follow Jesus is to love the fame. When I speak of fame, I mean acclaim and praise that comes from God more than the fame, acclaim, and praise that comes from man. Now, there is a temptation. I would say it's particular in leadership, but for all of us, for our personal value, our worth, and our identity to come through achievement and the praise or acclaim and fame that comes from people. Think about this really intentionally. Even our moral and good actions, if we think of what a good action is, can be motivated by our desire for fame from people. Over the last little bit, I've been reading Henry Nouwen's Genesee Diary, which is are his diary entries from seven months that he spent at a Trappist monastery. He's been he's so honest in these diary entries, and he he asks a question about this glory of God versus your own glory. And so I want to read you a section of that. He says, "The question how to live for the glory of God and not for your own glory has become very important to me." During the last weeks, I have realized more and more that even my seemingly most spiritual activities can be pervaded with vain glory. There is something special and in some people's eyes heroic about going to the Trappist, and I wondered if it is really God I am seeking. Even my most attention to aesthetic and mystical writings of the early fathers easily turns into ideas and insights to be used for others' conversion instead of my own. Yes, there is a great temptation to make even God the object of my passion and to search for him, not for his glory, but for the glory that can be derived from smart manipulation of godly ideas." Do you see what Nowen is confessing in his writing here? He's saying, even my moral or good actions, that my decision to come to the monastery is now seen as heroic. So am I seeking then the glory that comes from man, from people to what I'm doing? He then says, I'm, I'm reading content. I'm reading the Bible. And I struggle with this to read the Bible, not for myself to glean and to grow and to become closer in my intimacy with Jesus, but so that I can take something to then teach to other people or read in order to teach rather than to be taught. This is part of that distinction and understanding between seeking the fame from people versus the glory and the fame and acclaim that comes from God. Let's go into here the last several verses now, these last seven verses of chapter 12 are John's, the evangelist, our writer's extended commentary, which draws Jesus' public ministry to a close. So again, this is what, is what is John wanting to say about Jesus as he brings us to a close? What would Jesus, what would the petition to follow him, to believe in him, what would that be? Verse 44, and Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees him who sent me, now he has told the crowd, Jesus told the crowd that they would only have the light a little while longer. And here he kind of goes back to a point he's made before that to believe in Jesus is to believe in God the Father. It's a byproduct and reality. And to believe in God the Father must involve believing in God the Son, Jesus. 
Verse 46, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me might not remain in darkness, seeing Jesus as the light. And belief in him means freedom from darkness. Verse 47, if anyone, this is Jesus again, if anyone hears my words and does not keep him, keep them, I do not judge him for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Now, this is a repetition of what we've already read Jesus say in John 3, 17 to 19, that he came not to condemn, but to save. And what he's saying is that we people, we are already judged by our actions, our beliefs, and our words. And the same message that Jesus brings as the light to different people, to some it can mean life and forgiveness to the believer, but it also can mean condemnation and the wrath of God to the unbeliever. Verse 49 for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has, given, has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Jesus once again is saying that he and the Father are one. They're a package deal. As Jesus lives in perfect submission and obedience to the Father's will, which leads to eternal life. What Jesus is saying, he's saying, don't trust my word alone because it does not originate with me. He said it originates and comes from my father, God himself. Now for the Jewish audience, for many of them, many of them, they saw the law of Moses as the source of life. And what here Jesus is saying is that his word and grace is fulfilling and replacing the word and the law of Moses. And the reason that his words, Jesus words are so final is because they're the words of the father. So what is the kind of the final commission, the final call? What does it mean to follow, to believe in Jesus? Here's what Jesus is saying is that following him, following Jesus means believing that Jesus is the God man who came to save the world. Jesus is the God man who came to save the world. The deity of Jesus, the son is central to our understanding of God and the gospel and therefore, you and I need to admit that we need saved and that there are just consequences and judgment for not believing and following Jesus, that he came to save us. And so we need to understand and believe that we need to be saved from something. Well, this is how John completes Jesus' public ministry. And Jesus' speech here is a reflection of his person and that he is the word, the Logos made flesh. He's the Lamb of God who's about to die, and he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And therefore, we are the lost that need to be rescued. And so what we need is for the Spirit of God to give us hearts of flesh rather than hearts of stone. We need to be softened. Repeatedly in Jesus' teaching, he, he celebrates children which in the culture they didn't. And then at one point, Jesus says that we must become like children. The posture of a child is their need for their father. And so when Jesus is, is speaking here, his, his commission, his, his invitation really is to say, come, come to me. Following me is not easy, but following me 
leads to life, eternal life. But following me means that you recognize that you have a need and that the only person that can meet that need is Jesus and that he came to save you and to give you eternal life. And that's not just hope for the future. It's also hope in the present. They'll live eternally with Jesus. And so following Jesus means denying ourself and serving him no matter the cost. It means looking to him as our light and the one who illuminates the path in the darkness. It means coming to him and believing that he is in fact the God man and that he came to save the world. And it means pursuing his fame and his glory and caring less about the glory and fame that comes from people and caring more about the fame and glory that comes from God. This is what it means to follow Jesus. Well, I want you to hear a story now of someone in our community and their testimony and kind of the wrestling in their life around pursuing the fame that comes from man versus the fame that comes from God and how Jesus walked with them in the midst of that. Well, Jesus is better. If you've never committed your life to following Jesus, we'd love to hear from you. And you can email us, info at churchofthecity.ca, or as I said earlier in our reunion, you can go to guelph.churchofthecity.ca slash connect. And one of our pastors or one of our elders would love to reach out to you and begin exploring what it means and looks like to follow Jesus. Let me pray for us now, church. So Jesus, I thank you for this morning. And I pray that, uh, Lord, that what has been said here, God would multiply and that your spirit would take it and that your spirit would do a deep work in the lives of your people. And God, that this message, God, would uh, simply be a starting point. Again, that your spirit would use it and multiply it. And God, we pray that your kingdom would come here in Guelph as it is in heaven. And we pray that we, your people, would be serious about our discipleship of following you. And that we'd prioritize, God, our lives around your kingdom and not our own kingdoms. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.